Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham. With the self-appointed revolutionary of reason, Mike Graham. On Talk Radio. Welcome to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk Radio. We are shuddering towards the end of yet another astonishing week, it has to be said, in the big bad world of post-COVID Britain. Yes, I'm calling it post-COVID Britain because we are in post-COVID Britain. I don't care what anybody says. It's very clear that we have moved on. A lot of people have forgotten about it altogether. And apologies to anyone who uh, is now currently saying to me, oh, well, it's still a very dangerous virus. Well, it's a virus uh, and it has been very dangerous and it has had its moments and it has caused an awful lot of heartache for people. But I think we are now, safe to say, in January, Friday the 21st, um, I think we can say we are out of it. Here at Talk Radio, which is, of course, the home of common sense, we've been expecting something to happen, of course. But it hasn't, has it? We've been expecting someone to show some vim and vigour, but nobody has. We've been expecting a bit of leadership, but there hasn't been any of that either. Instead, we've seen the great disappearing out from Boris Johnson and the Cabinet just keep pushing everything into the long grass and hope it all goes away. Well, it's not going to go away. We're not going to let it go away. But as much as number 10 Downing Street would like us to forget about the investigation which is going on, which is looking further and further away uh, from Ms. Gray, uh, and when it does come, it won't be worth a fag end, it looks like. Never mind the parties. Never mind the disquiet in the ranks. Never mind all the black men that seem to be going on the back benches. Never mind the policies. Just feel the wind. That seems to be the message coming out of Downing Street. Are you buying it? Is Boris now just going to stay in power because nobody can be bothered to get him out of it? That's ridiculous, isn't it? 0344 499 Meanwhile, the big stories are actually going to matter. Prices are soaring to ludicrous heights. I'm hearing stories of people whose energy bills started at £200 a month are now £600 a month. It can't go on. People need to be told what is going to be happening to them. NHS waiting lists continue to get longer. Nobody's doing anything about that. And what's the Foreign Secretary doing in Australia? There's a war pending in uh, Russia on the Ukrainian border. And Liz Truss has gone to Australia. What, is she playing in the open? Is she filling in for Andy Murray now that he's been knocked out? I mean, what's going on? To make sense of it all this morning, we've brought the only man in who can make sense of it all, Richard Tice. He'll be here uh, very, very shortly. You'll hear from him. 0344-499-1000. We'll be talking about the misery of going back to work because you've never seen so many unhappy-looking people as I came into work this morning. They've all had to go back to the office. What? 
What do you mean I can't work from home anymore? It's an outrage. Absolutely ridiculous. Also, of course, we're going to be talking to Brendan O'Neill. We're going to be finding out about the NHS backlog. Uh, we're going to find out uh, as well about why energy bills are rising and what we can do about it. And also, of course, we've got some news on Adele, uh, who apparently tragically has had to cancel her £500,000 a night show at Vegas because she's been destroyed by COVID, apparently. I don't know why. And Meatloaf. Poor Meatloaf is no longer with us. 0344 499 1000. You're listening to me, Mike Graham, right here on the fastest growing radio show on the planet. It is, of course, Talk Radio. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Let's say a very good morning to Richard Tice. Nice to see you. A very good morning to you, Mike. It's hard to know whether to be cheery at yeah. the end of the week I know. or whether to be a bit gloomy and frustrated. I was very cheery when the, 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 the restrictions all got lifted, even knowing that it was all being done as a kind of a sideshow to the Boris Johnson act of, you know, well, let's just do this and see if yes. everybody likes it. Which apparently seems to have worked, unfortunately. Well, it, it's worked to a degree. And yes, it is good news that all the restrictions have been lifted. Credit where credit's due. Unless you're one of the unfortunate few thousand children who are still in a school up and down the country where the head teachers mm. or the unions are still insisting, despite a complete lack of any credible evidence to the contrary, yes. uh, they're still insisting that children remain muzzled and masked and therefore unable to learn as well mm. uh, and to integrate as well. Yes. And I think that's an absolute disgrace. That is an absolute disgrace. And I think all parents should actually take a stand and say, well, do you know what? I'm going to make my child exempt. They don't want to wear a mask anymore. That's right. But people don't want to seemingly do that, though. No, although I was heartened a couple of weeks ago when actually we were hearing about whole schools, whole year yes. groups that were rebelling against masks. And I think that was uh, a, a key moment. And I think the other key moment early at the beginning of this week was the news that the Us For Them group were going to sue the government with regard to masks in children. And I think that actually uh, really helped yeah. uh, you know, stop this nonsense. Well, I was talking to Francis Hall yesterday about the whole business of suing because so many people were punished, so many people were fined, so many people had terrible things happen to them as a result of the COVID regulations were brought in by the government, yeah. which the government clearly didn't seem to care about adhering well, it's, to it's, themselves. It's a really interesting point, and, and you, you touched on it in your intro. In a sense, it's almost like government has stopped or is the government now being led by Sue Gray? I'm not quite clear. Everything mm. seems to have pressed the pause button until she reports. And who knows what she will say and when that well, will I'm be. Well, I'm pretty sure she's not going to say anything very interesting. I'm but, pretty sure but, it's all but going here's to be the whitewashed. Thing. Yeah, but we know that there were massive breaches of the rules in Number 10. We know that people who did that elsewhere in the country were fined loads of money. So mm. are all those people in Number 10 going to be fined? Or, possibly, should all of the other fines tens of thousands of fines imposed across the whole country, actually, should they be basically mm. reimbursed on the basis that if our leaders didn't believe what they were telling us, then frankly, all the fines well, should be Well, Francis said something very interesting, that the fines themselves were never actually lawful, and that if you challenged them and forced somebody to take it to court, that could give you a very different outcome. And he's quite, he quoted one case where somebody who had been fined £10,000 went to court, and the judge uh, agreed that the fine should be applied, but only applied a £200 fine, because he said 10000 was disproportionate and ridiculous. Completely ridiculous. And and maybe everybody at number 10 should be fined £10,000. And then just for being crap. Just for being rubbish. Yeah. Uh, and for not showing proper leadership and not setting a proper example mm. and then see what happens. Yeah. And I suspect you might find that actually all the fines get um, But I mean, get you said off. something interesting to, me, interesting to me just before we started the show because I've been looking at this blackmailing story and thinking to myself, you know, yes, of course, it's a bit like House of Cards. It's a bit, I mean, Michael Fabricant was on the other day saying, well, of course, it would be ridiculous to consider uh, that threats like this would be made. I mean, we all know those threats are made. However, I just think this is a bit of a distraction, isn't it? Well, I think the reality is that... You can think it's a bit of a distraction. Look, this has gone on for, since time began in the mm. House of Commons. That doesn't mean that it's been acceptable. 
And I actually think all credit to William Ragg for actually blowing the lid yeah. on what is unacceptable behaviour from the whips. And I think I admire MPs if they don't like uh, a suggestion or a proposed vote from the government, if they've got the courage and the principle and the integrity to say, I'm going to vote against it, it's wrong, mm. it's not in my constituents' benefit interests, then that should be respected. And the idea that you can suddenly say, well, I'm going to pull a few strings and that primary school's not going to get a, a couple of new classrooms or not going to yeah. be rebuilt, I actually think is disgraceful. But, I mean, if, if that, that goes on. But that's Wakeford's claim. I'm all, I mean, he's known uh, here at the Independent Republic as Weasel Wakeford. Yeah, I, you know, the man I, who wants think, to have a by-election except for when he decides to move it, to the Indeed, Party and, and now doesn't. And that is appalling. But I think it's the principle. And I think what William Ragg has blown the lid on is just how far that is taken. And, you know, yes, you can say, well, you know, MPs have just got to basically just sort of man up and take it. But no, I think it's... I think what we're hearing is actually it's a bit mm. more than that. There's a, there's a balance between a negotiation and a bit of leverage between uh, between two sides of a, a debate, of an argument, and actually uh, employing what broadly amounts to a form of blackmail stroke corruption where you're, you're really saying uh, you're not going... It's like what they call it in America, they call it sort of pork barrel politics. Ah. But this, again, surely is all about saving Boris Johnson. And oh, all of the things sure. that are now happening in Parliament, this is why, for me, he still has to go... Uh, it's all about him. It's not about what's good for the country. It's not about whether we should be uh, uh, making particular parts of policy work. It's all about, oh, what can I do to make myself even more stable? What can I do to make myself more um, reliable? What can I do to keep myself in well, the job? Of course, they threw out a bunch of uh, policies, sort of red meat, uh, to try and uh, impress the Daily Mail and the and the Telegraph, which is, in a sense it did. And, and both those newspapers have sort of panicked. They thought, yeah. oh, we've overreached. Yes, I mean, Boris. I don't wish to um, in any way cast aspersions on anybody's family or anybody's health, but, you know, they put it out there and then they complain about the fact that there's intrusion. That story about how, you know, one of his children was very ill with COVID was absolute and utter nonsense. You know, I'm not saying it didn't happen, but the way it was written, the way that the sort of tears were flowing over the page, the way that sympathy was being garnered, you know, I, oh, uh, she was very ill. Well, really? You know, well, join the club. Lots of people have got kids who are very ill. Don't put that out there now and try and get sympathy. Yeah, no, I, I think the thing with uh, with the Prime Minister is that he is on the ropes. He's, he's right on the edge. Uh, in a sense, uh, Wakeford's defection probably did actually save him on the day. Yeah. And Do you think uh, he's a double agent or <laughs> you know he's got over to labor just It's to hard screw to it know but but I think that uh, what do I think really uh, he is waiting for the grave report. We shouldn't be surprised if if the grave report looks bad it's not impossible that actually the prime minister goes before he's pushed. And that's something to just to think about. Yes. Wasn't it extraordinary how Despite on Tuesday having sort of appeared so downcast uh, and almost in tears when he was talking to uh, Beth Rigby, yeah. the following day, actually, he came out and gave a blistering performance yeah. in the House of Commons. It was almost as though the weight of the world had lifted off his shoulders. What, you mean he wasn't really in tears? He was just pretending to be in tears? I, I don't know, but it was it was an extraordinary mm. difference. Quite quite bizarre. Yeah. Um, but I, he, is, he is in deep trouble. It's a matter of when, not if. Right. And I think that... But I don't think he believes that. I think he thinks that this has all gone away. I think he genuinely, like all kind of no, people I, I, who I, believe themselves to be I think, you know, I think, untouchable... I think he knows that he's in deep trouble. Mm. And uh, he, he's a clever man. He knows that, frankly, he hasn't got many friends in the House of Commons. He's never been a sort of a, 
uh, someone to you know to get on well with lots of other parliamentarians. Mm. And I think that's going to come back and um, come back and bite him. It's just a matter of when, not if. Yes, but I mean, has he quelled the back benches? I suppose is one question. I mean, David Davis again. Uh, that was an incredible yes. intervention <clears throat> in Prime Minister's questions. I was here watching it. It was live on this show. Um, and I was like, blimey, that's amazing. But then he was kind of ridiculed for doing it and, and made to look like he had overreached and overstretched and had hit the wrong target at the wrong time. I, I'm told that he made that decision. He hadn't told anybody he was going to do that. And he only finally made that decision as he walked into the really? chamber, right. is my understanding. And that, presumably that after wrong. watching the performance that Boris had given, well, which it, for me was hopeless. That's interesting. You know? I, I thought, I, I think relative to Tuesday, I think Boris came out fighting on Wednesday yeah. in PMQs. I know a lot of people but, said that. But David Davis's intervention was really significant. In yeah. my view, it was a form, it was like a Geoffrey Howe moment. Mm. It was really significant. And sure, lots of people have said, you know, he, he did the wrong thing. But he's a very senior experienced yeah. MP. And a pretty well-respected one as and well. And actually highly respected. And my sense is that we're in a we're in a pause mode. And we, we don't know when Sue Gray is going to report. Well, we think it's next week, don't, is, we're told. She's got so many parties to, re- mm. to report on and to investigate. Who knows? But the longer it goes on, the less important that report is. And the less likely is that report to be in any way hard-hitting, I think. Uh, that's possible. But equally, so many MPs have said they've got to wait for the report. I think a lot of people are just sort of sitting on the fence. Mm. And I think that if, if the, there's a lot of people who are looking for something in that report on which to make their final decision... And I think a lot of people actually uh, want Boris out. And let's remember, of course, there are a huge number of Tory MPs that think they're going to stand for the leadership. I mean, mm. if there is a leadership campaign, you would be looking at 15 to 20 candidates, yeah. probably throwing their hat in the ring. So it, I think some extraordinary things will happen. Yes, they might think there's a bit of a lull at the moment. And there's never a good time to have a change of leader. Mm. But there's a huge amount of anger out there. Who knows? For all we know, Putin might come to Boris's rescue because if Putin invades Ukraine, then we're into a wholly different place, yeah. Mike. Wholly different Absolutely. place. Absolutely. But that's the other reason why you would ask the question, do you really want to have Boris Johnson, a man who has singularly uh, taken us down all sorts of roads in the past and has proven to us that he is entirely interested in only one thing, and that's the preservation of Boris Johnson. Do you really want a guy like that in charge of a major international crisis? Well, and then you've got Biden uh, in, in the Biden's US. Biden's even worse. I mean, he, he was sort of caught saying, well, it depends on the nature of the invasion. If he does a bit, then we might respond yeah. this way. And if he does a bit more, I mean, I was just absolutely hopeless. Well, he's terrified, isn't he, of doing anything overseas because Trump taught him the lesson. Actually, people don't want to have American troops anywhere outside of America because America has but become it's, but, incredibly but, isolated. Yeah, but, but of course, no one's talking about troops. What we're talking about here is the economic sanctions mm. and they need, to be, they need to be robust. They need to be massive. And Putin needs to know that uh, if if he does invade, then actually he would be cut yes. off from the banking no, system. No, but what I mean by, by troops on the ground is that America is a very simple country. You know that. I know yep. that. Right. Um, it's not that they're not quite. They're just not very sophisticated when it comes to international relations. And people who live in America, even those who are quite well educated, don't really understand the rest of the world. And they don't want anything to do with it. And they'd rather everybody just stayed in America and didn't go anywhere. Yes, I mean, they can be quite isolationist, but equally, obviously, they, they have been, they've been the, essentially the, the global superpower since the Second World War, mm. and, and they've, they've played the role of, of the global policeman. But, of course, that's changing, mm. as we saw, essentially, from the Afghanistan, from Afghanistan moment, exactly. when we, we talked about that. Yeah. But this is a really significant moment. I'm going to be talking about it on Sunday, because if Putin invades Ukraine, 
the direction of gas prices, commodity prices, you know, they could go up very sharply, very fast. And that could be really, really uncomfortable mm. for all of us. And all of this for Putin is about the money. Uh, he, he knows he's literally got uh, the continental Europe. I mean, he's got them by the short and curlies because basically they import almost 50% of their gas needs from Russia. And Putin wants the, uh, he wants the Nord Stream 2 pipeline open. I mean, you look at the, the, the fracturing here. Uh, you've got Germany that didn't allow the UK to fly over its airspace to take the weapons to mm. Ukraine. Why? Because they didn't want to upset Russia, no. because they want to make sure that Russia doesn't turn off the gas taps. Yeah. So you start to understand the leverage that Putin has got. And, you know, this is a really, really dangerous moment. Yeah. And, you know, we worry about the cost of living. We mm. worry about inflation. I fear we haven't seen anything yet mm. as to what could happen well, over the coming months. I'm glad you brought that up because we're going to talk about the energy crisis, which is what is going on out there. That's the big thing that's worrying everybody. It's the big thing that's going to make a big difference to people's uh, wallets, the pound in your pocket. People are talking about a quadruple rise in what they were paying this time last year to what they're paying this year. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Richard Tice is here with me. We're talking about energy, Richard. Uh, I've got a great uh, tweet here from Angela, because Rishi Sunak has talked about giving away some money, 500 quid, to the poorest families. Uh, Angela says, Rishi's 500 pounds for the poorest regarding energy bills. Surely it's better to cut the green tax and the VAT to help everyone. This is another Rishi charm offensive, like he's eat out to help out, and look how that ended up. Taxpayers can't keep funding whims from the Treasury. It's a good point. Look, it, it is a good point, and, I mean, it is awful what's happening to energy prices. Yeah. Everybody is seeing... Thing letters land on their on their doormat through the letterbox with horrendous numbers, yeah. doubling, tripling. I mean, people just can't believe it, and it's all due to the government's uh, failed energy policies for the last decade. Mm. And yes, I think that the the environmental levies, which represent twenty five percent of your electricity bill, the VAT on domestic fuel, that we can now cut thanks to Brexit. Everybody in the Labour Party, uh, thanks to Brexit. Uh, these things should go. But even then, I think we may end up with, if, if gas prices go up even higher, Mike, you could end up with an energy equivalent of furlough because actually some of this uh, will become yes. completely and unsustainable. That, and, and, and the government is being naive, thinking yeah. this, is a, this is a short-term yeah. spike. Because also Putin wants this to be long-term. You can't give money away to people who can't afford to pay their bills. I mean, that's a ludicrous idea, isn't it? Uh, well, uh, it, it's, it's a real problem. Yeah. But the point is that... The, the real issue here is that what's happening in the the, the free market has failed here uh, because we're in we're in almost like a warlike situation against Putin, and so anything that people could reasonably have predicted has now gone out the window. Mm. A bit like when you know when we first locked down, you could never reasonably predict that. No, you couldn't predict that energy prices, the gas prices in the UK would go up by three or four times in six months. Yeah, and I think. W- the simple response to that is it highlights how we've got to be self-reliant as a nation yeah. on our own energy. We have hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of billions of pounds worth of our own shale gas mm. under our feet that's owned by all of us, Mike. Yes. All of your listeners, mm. all of these great people who listen to Talk Radio and everybody, we own this shale gas. Right. Why would you leave the treasure a kilometre underground when you could actually bring it to the ground safely, happily, using new technology. Well, the answer to that is simple, isn't it? It's the green lobbyists, the people like Zach well, Goldsmith and Carrie, well, formerly known as Simmons, if now they were, Johnson, who says, oh, no, we can't be doing that. Well, if they want to pay Angela's energy bill, then they're very welcome to. Well, I, wish, otherwise, they, well, I wish they'd just get out of frankly, the way. 
otherwise then actually we want this golden gas mm. out of our ground that we own yeah. because that actually you could you could halve our gas prices yeah. in the UK if we used our own gas as opposed to buying Putin's well, gas and Macron's re- electricity well, you could reduce the costs altogether by by simply slashing VAT and the uh, the, the ridiculous yes, green that's, subsidy that's 25% a, good a quarter off the bill already but imagine if i did even more for you yeah. imagine if i halved your gas bill mm. Because we're using our own gas yeah. that we all own. This is what what's out there. Mm. I'm going to be talking about this again and again and again. I think it's an absolute disgrace uh, what is going on, what these eco zealots yeah. have done have we to the poorest in society. But how have we allowed these people? And we're going to be talking to Net Zero Watch later on in the show. How have we allowed these kind of green millionaires? to basically piggyback money off the government, get subsidies to run wind farms, get subsidies to run solar panel companies, get subsidies to kind of supposedly make our energy greener. And all that's happening is they're just getting richer it's, and richer, correct. and we're getting stooped. It's, it's very simple. Uh, that they have, uh, they have lobbied and persuaded uh, feeble cabinet ministers, weak leaders... Who, who actually have been more interested in the vested interests of their mates mm. as opposed to looking after the likes of Angela and millions and millions and millions of ordinary yeah. families up and down the country who are being utterly shafted yeah. by this because process. Because everybody really I ask, I'm, I've now started asking the question that nobody can answer. What actually is net zero? What does it mean? What is it, what is it I'll tell you what it achieve? Means, what is it? I'll tell you what it means. It means impoverishment, fuel poverty, and sending our jobs and our money to China and Russia. And it is totally unacceptable and it really winds me up it's the thing that's that's infuriating me more than anything yeah. else now because once again it's about the wealthy middle class the metropolitan eco zealots uh, who are impoverishing uh, the lowest paid the least well off who do some of the most important yeah. jobs the key worker but jobs everything that we that see keep us fed right but everything that we see switch on the bbc switch on sky any kind of you know a media company that you like apart from this one and all you get is well of course we all know that we have to reach net zero and i'm going i'm throwing things at the tv at this point i'm going what do you mean we all know we have to get to net zero what does it what does it even mean well it, nobody it, knows as i say it means impoverishing millions of people sending our jobs and money overseas when actually we could keep both jobs and money here mm. and you know we need to take them on on this and this is this is the big the big debate the big campaign yeah. over the next couple of years it all comes into this and let me let, let me be absolutely clear we're only at the foothills mm. of the cost mountain of net zero just at the foothills yeah. you know you think it's bad at the moment it gets a whole bunch worse over the next three or four years unless we change Yes, it. and this is what I keep saying to people about Boris Johnson, you know, forget about the parties, right? Forget about the hypocrisy, forget about the COVID nonsense. Then think about the one policy that he pushed through while COVID was going on, and there's only one policy that he pushed through, only one thing that he was concentrating on, and that was COP26, yeah. the green agenda, and, and all of that rubbish about, you know, making us all the leader, the world leader in green economy. And the knock-on consequences of that is that taxes go up yeah. and up, and up, and people feel poorer and poorer and poorer. Yeah. And it's very bad news. Yes. And make no mistake, I mean, I'm no fan of Keir Starmer, as anybody who listens to this show knows. And I'm certainly not batting for Keir Starmer. And I'm certainly not suggesting that he would do a better job because he wouldn't. But what I do want to see is somebody in the Tory party coming forward to run it like a Conservative party, which there hasn't well, been doing for, good, for, for years. Good luck with that. You could be waiting a very long time, I'm afraid, Mike, because that just ain't going to happen. Mm. If there's a change of leadership, which I think there will be, you will see no change of policy yeah. on the most important thing that affects the most people across this country, which is the cost of living ruined by 
the uh, the net zero targets. Yeah. And, and of course, we need to take the other, it on. The one final thing I want to raise with you is the rather ludicrous sideshow, uh, which is being sort of pushed by the likes of Adonis uh, and Heseltine, which is that if we get rid of Boris, we can get rid of Brexit, which is so ludicrous, I don't really even want to talk about it. But tell us what you make of that. Look, it's hysterically ridiculous. Yeah. You can understand why they're saying it, but it's a nonsense. But here's the thing. Watch the weasel words of the Labour Party, because they all say we've no plans right. to rejoin the EU. Those plans. That's today. Right. That means that tomorrow their plans are going to change. And all of a sudden they're going to say, oh, we might rejoin the single market and the customs union yes. as a as a starter for 10. Mm. We will call them out on that. Uh, they won't give a cast iron guarantee that they accept the vote of the British people. And I think they'll be found out on mm, that. I think so. Richard Tice keeping them honest. Uh, Sunday, uh, 10 o'clock. Sunday, we've got a lot on. We're going to be talking about Ukraine, the mm. impact on gas prices. I'm also going to be talking about the great furlough ripoff. Yes. Because some companies... Why have they behaved, written off all this money? Well, hang on. Some companies have behaved very well. And when things weren't too bad, they've actually given furlough money back that they used to protect mm. jobs. But other companies, and I'm going to get after them on Sunday, have banked tens of millions of pounds, in one case, hundred million pounds, when actually they're still making huge profits. Mm. I'm going to be talking about that. I'm also going to be talking about this outrage that the Home Office has now decided that it's not going to release daily numbers of oh, the yeah. illegal crossings. Yeah, no, no, that, they're going to do it a good quarterly. way of keeping it quiet. Yeah, well, but, but you can you can see exactly what what's happening here. They know that the numbers are going to be at least double last year, possibly treble, and they want to try and reduce the quantity of embarrassment. Mm. That's why they brought the Navy in, because they can basically... Put it down as bring, a national secret. They, they, they can bring them in and they'll be able to try and cover up. It'll be harder to see them coming off the mm. Navy boats. Uh, that's what I think is going on. But, of course, that's one of the reasons the numbers will go up, because the, the vile smugglers will be able to say to people, it's safer than ever. Yeah. Because guess what? The Navy are going to pick right. you up halfway across. And they're not going to even count how many of you there are. Um, one final thing. I never had you down as a meatloaf fan, but I, uh, you looked a bit sad this morning when you came I in. Was, I was very sad because, actually, yes, believe it or not, uh, in my teenage years at school, I loved Meatloaf. Did you? I loved Bad Out of Air. Great album. I was briefly an amazing album, and yes, I was a headbanger. Were you? I was a headbanger as a hair? teenager. I need we to need clarify to, that. We need to find pictures. <laughs> Anybody else out there who knew uh, Mr. Tice when he was a young man? Uh, I, of course, am doing my Meatloaf impression even as we speak, but uh, that was before <laughs> he lost weight. Um, this is, of course, the Independent Republic of Mike Graham. Richard, thanks very much indeed. We'll see you at 10 o'clock on Sunday. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Let's talk to Brendan O'Neill, Chief Political Writer at Spiked, of course, uh, because, Brendan, I've got a question for you. Where's Chris Whitty? <laughs> well, I, uh, as long as he stays off the TV screens, <laughs> I don't particularly mind where he is. I think the points you make about where has Sage gone are, are very good ones because... They ran our lives for yeah. a long time. They were in charge of the country, as far as I could tell. And they were giving instruction to the people we elected and telling them to shut us all down. So if these so-called experts disappear with their scaremongering and their hysterical models, then I think that's a good thing for the nation. Yes, I think it is. However, I would like, as ever, to know how much we've paid them. People have asked me over the course of the last few months, Brendan, how do these people from SAGE get appointed? You know, most of them seem to be attached to Imperial College or uh, the London School of Tropical Medicine or something like that. Um, but I'd like, I mean, I know many of them are not paid because they've got other jobs, but certainly the chief medical officer uh, is, a, is a government job, as was um, uh, all of his deputies. And I just think we should be told. It seems to me uh, to be a, a habit in government now where if you don't tell anybody anything, uh, they'll just never find out and they'll go away. 
Yeah, well, that, that was one of the problems with these people. There was so little accountability. And the people who run the country are supposed to be accountable to us. That's how a democracy works. And we lived under the boot of uh, an expert class over the past two years who we never voted for, we never elected. There were no mechanisms for us to hold them accountable. We don't know what the, they get paid. We don't know what they're thinking. We don't know what they're going to come up with next. We were really beholden to that section of society without having any democratic say-so over the, the, the policies they were coming up with. Mm. So that lack of accountability during the lockdown era, that was one of the key problems. Yes, and I've noticed that some of the kind of slightly more lockdown-tastic uh, scientists who were not actually in SAGE, but there's that woman up in Edinburgh wrote a piece of The Guardian the other day talking about how, well, now that we've removed the fangs from COVID, we can approach it in a different way. And I read the piece and I was astonished at how kind of two-faced she'd become, talking about how, oh, well, of course, now uh, we should now look at the economy we should now look at the uh, the after effects of lockdown and why lockdown was bad in certain ways. Well, they never said any of that while lockdown was being ordered, did they? Absolutely not. And I think we're going to witness a, a real reverse ferret over the next few months. <laughs> I think a lot of the people who uh, supported the first lockdown, which was the most severe, and subsequent lockdowns as well, I think they're going to start backtracking on just how enthusiastically they supported those lockdowns. They didn't raise questions at the time about the extraordinarily stupid rules we had to live under, playgrounds being locked mm. up, uh, yellow tape being put on park benches, people being swept out of parks for no reason right. whatsoever, people being, you know, uh, drones being used to monitor dog walkers in the Lake District, and of course, the far worse side of it, people being left to die alone, dementia sufferers being deprived of visits from loved ones, which can help to keep uh, dementia sufferers alive and healthy. All of those tyrannical things that were done, none of these people raised questions at the time. And in fact, what they said to those of us who did raise questions is that, that we were reckless and dangerous and we wanted people to die. So they actually, they actively uh, clamped down on discussion. And I think we can't let them revise history and revise the role that they played. No. No, absolutely not. And I think more important than that, even, and I was talking uh, to, to um, Francis Hoare about this the other day, you know, we have to ensure that this never happens again, because the ease with which uh, the government was able to kind of enact all sorts of regulations and enact uh, all sorts of rules without even discussing them in Parliament first and telling the police what they had to do. I was finding that incredibly overbearing and, and, and frankly, untenable. And it should never happen again. Absolutely. It must never happen again. And I, I would be surprised if it was possible to have a lockdown again, because people are increasingly sceptical that we need those kinds of extreme measures. You know, the Omicron variant shows that people are more than capable of taking voluntaristic measures. You know, lots of people voluntarily limited their social life and limited their, their going out outdoors mm. uh, in the run up to Christmas because they didn't want to catch Omicron, they didn't want to spread it to people. You know, we can be trusted to take sensible precautions when we have to do that. We don't need these severe restrictions and these criminal laws to force us to behave in a particular way. And I think it's very important that even if there was another variant, even if there's another uh, pandemic in the future, that we rely on the common sense and the decency of ordinary people to go about their lives and to take sensible measures 
rather than creating these vast reams of legislation that basically put us under house arrest. Yeah. That can never happen again. And what have you made of the week's kind of doings as far as the government is concerned? You know, Sajid Javid coming out and basically saying, well, we're still going to push through uh, the NHS vaccination mandate and you will be fired if you haven't got two vaccinations or possibly three or maybe four. Um, but apart from that, basically everything else, all bets are off. You know, it was dangerous to go to school without a mask on on Monday. Uh, but today, apparently it's not. I think uh, I'm delighted at the scrapping of Plan B. I'm very happy about that. I think, but I think it's not enough. And what I mean by that is that we now need to have a broad national discussion about what happened. And if we don't do that, if we just say, okay, that was fine, we had a weird 22 months, but now we're getting back to normal, then we'll never we'll never have the reckoning that we need to have. You know, there are six million people now on the NHS waiting lists because the NHS basically told people not to use its services right. for the best part of a year. There are still uh, tens of thousands of children who've dropped out of the school system. We know that health problems increased over the lockdown period because people were psychologically disorientated mm. or they simply suffered from health problems that otherwise would have been seen to by doctors and of course there was the massive economic impact as well loads of job losses economic downturn and all those problems associated with that so we have to now look back at what we did ask if it was the right thing to do and ask who was responsible for making these severe decisions about our lives. And if we don't do that, then we'll never learn from this experience. No, exactly right. And I mean, I wonder now whether uh, there will be a reckoning in the cabinet as well, because, you know, regardless of what happens to Boris Johnson, we've talked about that in the first hour. You know, my belief is still that he's done, he's dusted, he should move on and he should have the cojones to do that. Um, but my problem with the rest of the cabinet is that none of them really have shown any sort of leadership. They've all been very, very happy to inflict more and more regulations on the rest of the public and they've been more and more happy to put more and more taxes on us so i would like to see a proper conservative cabinet made up of the likes of steve baker maybe uh, maybe even tom tugendhat some of the more you know vocal backbenchers um you know even tobias elwood who i know uh, has had a couple of run-ins with me because he was a bit of a remainer but these are all substantial figures uh, and they all seem to be graham brady from the 1922 committee they all seem to be people that get why they were elected and they get what ordinary people want i think that's what we need we whoever it might be and i think some of those names you mentioned there are very good candidates for this we need people who understand why they were elected that's exactly right and mm. that's what i think boris has lost sight of i think he's lost sight of who put him into power and why they put him into power right. he was he got this huge mandate in the general election of 2019 largely from uh, uh, millions of working class voters in the red wall areas who wanted to get Brexit done, who wanted to stop all the woke nonsense, who wanted to hold back the liberal technocracy we've all lived under for the past few decades. That's what they charged him with doing. And he's not done a very good job of it. No. It's partly down to his own political cowardice, I think, but it's also because he's got Carrie Antoinette whispering in his ear all the time and encouraging him to embrace all sorts of mad policies. She's been ordinary... an absolute disaster. I mean, somebody tweeted me last week and said she's done more harm to the Conservative Party than Jeremy Corbyn did to Labour. <laughs> it's, it's extraordinary. You know, it's like, you know, those millions of working class voters in the Midlands and the North, they didn't vote for this very posh woman to push through uh, uh, eccentric uh, middle class policies in Downing Street. Right. It's very, very anti-democratic what she is doing and what her clique is doing. So Boris has got to listen to people like her less 
and he's got to listen to ordinary people more. They've got to remember they were put into power in order to sweep aside the old uh, kind of woke establishment right. that's been running politics for the past few years and to do something new. And they're failing to do that. They really are. And when you get the likes of Zach Goldsmith, who's one of her big mates, you know, who's been wealthy beyond belief for the most of his life, well, all of his life, really, um, living now high on the hog, sitting in the House of Lords, coming out and defending Boris. This was at the beginning of this whole kind of crisis after uh, the whole business with um, uh, the MP who was, who, was, who was charged with sleaze. And it was all kind of a bit ridiculous. You're thinking, this is a guy who was elected by the Red Wall, by people who had voted Labour all their lives, people in mining communities who understood that Boris Johnson might have gone to Eton, but he got them and he was doing what he was doing for them. And he seems to have just completely lost all of that because he's hanging around with the wrong people. Yeah, you know, the great thing about 2019, the election in that year, was that it was a great political realignment. It was a working class revolt against the Labour Party, which I've been waiting a long time, uh, a large part of my life for that to happen. It was very positive. It was ordinary people saying, listen, we think this strange, foppish man from Eton and Oxford un understands us better than the Labour Party, mm. than the party that was set up supposedly and it to was represent true. our interests. And it was true. So they took a punt on Boris. They saw him as a better uh, choice than, than Corbyn and, and probably than Starmer. And he's letting them down. Now, I, st I think he can still pull it back. It, I think it will be a huge task, but he can still pull it back. But the only way he can do that is if he really turns around Downing Street, starts to speak to and understand what people want, takes Brexit more seriously, because that's not finished yet no, either, and starts to push back against the excesses of the chattering classes. If he doesn't do that, then he really deserves to lose. And what do you make of those kind of diehard Boris Johnson fans who are occasionally coming and having a go at me and saying, what are you doing? Why are you attacking the only guy that got us out of Europe? Well, because sometimes people change and sometimes people use up their usefulness and sometimes it's time to get somebody new. And I think one question is, which lots of people have asked is, who is the real Boris Johnson? You know, is it the kind of hip metropolitan mayor of London who was very, who was actually quite right on in many ways? Yeah, he was. And, was, and, and you know, felt very connected to the metropolitan elites in London. Or is it the Boris who uh, made those appeals to the northerners and the Midlanders of the Red Wall areas mm. and said, I promise to represent your best interests? Who's the real Boris Johnson? My feeling is it's the London mayor of yeah. London, Boris, is the real Boris. He ha A leopard can't really change its spots. But what it can do, it can learn if you're in, in a democracy, it can learn to heed the, uh, the desires and the interests of ordinary people. Mm. That's where Boris is failing. And he's moment. actually always been quite good at that, but he can't seemingly do that now. He can't do that now. And if you look at some of the issues he's changed on, for example, the green issue, he used to write some really interesting columns in the old days about how climate change alarmism was out of control and the world is not coming to an end and we've got to push back against the environmentalist lobby. And now he's as green as you can get, you know, and that's no doubt down to Carrie's influence and, and other people, too. But this is not the politics that ordinary working people are interested in. They want investment in their communities. They want public infrastructure. They want Brexit to be reality and they want to have democratic clout. And if this government doesn't deliver those things to those people, then it's in serious trouble. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. Great to talk to you, Brendan. Thank you very much indeed. Brendan O'Neill, Chief Political Writer for Spiked, of course, they're talking perfect sense. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio.
This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. John's in Southampton. Hi, John. Uh, morning, Mike. Morning, sir. What can I do for you? <laughs> well, maybe I can help put your fire out a little bit. Go on. Um, in that, as I recall, as I think it's happening now in other countries across Europe and the world, mm. the lockdowns have been far more draconian and enforced uh, than it is in the UK. You could say it's, it's liberal compared to some places. And um, as I recall as well, that the government was accused of acting too slowly in stopping things happening when the Cheltenham Festival went ahead and then other events went ahead. And then there was uproar and the Labour opposition sort of hammered mm. in for that. Yes. Now, opposition... And listen, at the beginning, I think people were willing to give the government a bit of a, a break. You know, they were willing to say, well, you know, people who went to Cheltenham probably shouldn't have. But that wasn't the end of the world, was it? I mean, people didn't die in mass numbers because they went to Cheltenham. A lot of people got infected. I don't know, but I know there was quite a fuss made of it at the time. Yeah. We're going back two years, I guess. But yeah. um, but the other thing is the opposition should be the target for you because Labour have been very poor. Well, no, the opposition aren't running the country, though. The opposition aren't the people responsible for what is going on. The opposition are not the ones that have made it difficult for hospitality companies to make any money. The hospitality well, companies no, haven't I, made money because the government made rules which made it impossible for them to work. Yeah, I get that. I've heard you say that sort of thing before. And there's some... You know, there's some uh, measure of accuracy. There oh, really? You think? Well, no, that's because that's what happened, John. The, the, the Labour Party are of no consequence by and large. I wish they had given more opposition to the government, and then I might have supported them. But they didn't, well, exactly. and they, they were hopeless. But you can't, but you can't blame them for what happened I'm in the country. I'm not blaming them. I'm not, I'm not looking to blame anyone. I'm, Why not? I'm looking to sort of put a different light on something. Okay. Which is that. 
They are supposed to be opposite. If Chesterfield played Chelsea every week, Chelsea would beat them 5-0 every week and soon get fed up with that. And they wouldn't improve because the opposition is so poor. And the opposition is so poor that even on Wednesday at PMQ, yeah. we had, he gets seven chances to ask pertinent questions and every one was on the character and personality. Right. Well, what question nothing... would you have had him ask then? What? What? What question I'm would you have had Keir Starmer ask Boris Johnson? Which question did he did he not ask that you would have had him ask? I'd have asked him what's what what are we actually doing in regards to the energy crisis? What are what's our position on other areas of society that are sitting in bad ways like knife crime and what is specifically is happening there? And there's, there's a range of things because there's lots going on that is not. I'm not saying Boris and his reputation is important. But it's not, it's not, all they want is his scale. Yeah, no, I get that. I get that. But you can't really blame them. That's kind of what their job is. And then Boris acknowledged no, that. Not, Boris, Boris, no, hang on. Boris acknowledged that that was what they were doing because he said, I realise that my honourable friend opposite uh, has a job to try and remove me. And that was, you know, everybody understands that. But you can't blame the opposition for the government being crap. Well, I don't, I don't agree with you because I don't think the opposition is job is to continue then from day one try and remove the prime minister. Well, no, they haven't been trying to remove. Yeah, but hang on, they haven't been trying to do that from day one, John. But when they see that he is vulnerable, when they think that they can get him, they're going to go for it, aren't they? But yeah, perhaps. But that's what's wrong because it's political size and everything. Well, do you think Boris Johnson's doing a good job of being prime minister right now? Well, I think he's had the worst hand ever dealt to any That's not what I asked you. Do you think he's doing a good job? I think in the circumstances, it's reasonable. Really? Um, Well, as far as I'm concerned... So you would be happy for him to remain as Prime Minister despite the fact that he has locked us down, completely wrecked the economy uh, and not really even got us out of Europe properly? I don't think you can say he locked us down. Well, I'm afraid he's in charge, so it was his decision. I don't know about that. Well, I know about that. He's the Prime Minister. He made the decision. Yeah, but if it's his decision, he takes that into account, the various advice he gets. And on one hand, there'll be experts saying you should do this. And there'll be experts saying... Well, that's the job. That's the job. That's like like me saying, oh, listen, it's not my fault I said what I said. I was told to say it. I have to take responsibility for what I say. It's not that. I'm trying to get you to see that there's a different way of looking at this. You're not doing very well, I'm afraid. Well, that's only because you're closed-minded about it. You think I'm closed-minded, John? Really? You decided you're right. And it doesn't matter well, of course I'm right. Wrong. Because anybody with half a brain can see that Boris Johnson is a busted flush. He lies in order to stay where he is. He does whatever he can to stay where he is. He started talking about stopping the migrants from coming on board. So he thought that would help him. But he's not doing that, is he? No, but can I just advise you not to go to James O'Brien? Oh, don't be so stupid, John. Don't be an absolute and utter idiot. I am not James O'Brien. I never will be James O'Brien. James O'Brien not fit to lick my boots. I agree with that. But you just said anyone with... Just because I don't like what Boris Johnson's doing doesn't make me an anti-Tory Labour lick spittle, does it? Listen to what you said. You said anyone with a half a brain who thought that he was doing a reasonable job Therefore, you're saying I've got half a brain. That's not what I said. That's an insult. That's not what I said. I'm not even sure you've got half a brain, John, if you think he's doing a good job. Oh, well, come on. Maybe it wasn't you who said concrete grows, so it's not. Well, concrete um, does grow. Everybody knows that. I know you've you've gone out of your way to prove it does grow. But 
the, the thing is, the opposition, PMQs, the opposition just wanted the scalp. And the SNP spoke to You can't blame on. Starmer for Boris and messing it up, can you? I'm not. I'm, I'm talking about the opposition. Why? So I'm not talking about... They're not in charge Starmer. of anything. No, but they... they, they well, how is it their fault, then? I'm saying they serve a function, a function they're not actually... Yeah, they're not doing their jobs either, but they're not in charge and they're not responsible for what's happened. Boris Johnson's no, responsible. I, well, I said to your research person that there was three areas I wanted to mention. Would it be all right? They said, yes, go ahead. Well, have you done if that? You no, because you won't... I'm just trying to tell you my view of the SNP. Well, you've told me your view, haven't you? And you say you're not, you're not interested in what he says. Well, I'm not saying he's not. I'm not interested. I've just told you that the Boris Johnson problem is caused by one person alone, and that is Boris Johnson. Nothing to do with Keir Starmer. Right. And so, in this conversation, you are just focusing purely on Boris, and I'm saying to you, I'm trying to talk about a different aspect. Well, you've been so talking for about five minutes, John, and you've done that, haven't you? Have you not no, been you satisfied? Keep, you keep stopping. You keep stopping me when I want to say my last point. Well, what's your last point then, John? Because we've got to well, go to the news. P. Chat got on his feet. And he, he said much the same as Keir Starmer. Who and did? He insisted on a resignation. No questions about... Oh, Blackford's an idiot. I don't pay any attention to what Why Blackford says. Why you interrupting me? Because it's my now, job, John. If I didn't interrupt well, you, we'd be here all day. Surely your job is to open up a discussion. Well, aren't we having a discussion, John? Make my last point, which well, you said I could. Well, you tr- well, make it then. What is it? Well, don't interrupt me. Let, I, don't tell me what to do, John. OK, no, that's dangerous. Now, yes, Very dangerous. Yeah, the SNP chap. Ian Blackford. Is it all right if I interrupt you to tell you his name? Well, I'm... Yes, Blackford. Now, the thing is, when <laughs> he looked... I don't know who you're talking about now, but <laughs> why do you keep interrupting? I'm not. Oh, right. It's Blackford's dog. Would you get on with it, John? I'm trying to. Well, get on with it. Right. He looked across towards the end of his statement, right. and he noticed that Boris smirked. And he was looking at his watch, wasn't he? And he looked at his watch and said, Christ, we've tried all this before, and I'm going to ask for the same thing. And and he, he sort of, yes, half smirked, if you like. And then he got all indignant, the SNP vote, and said, oh, look, oh, dear. Did you see that? The Prime Minister smiled. That's how serious he's taking this. And yet... I'm starting to wish I'd interrupted you, John. We've got to go to the news, mate. Listen, uh, it's great talking to you, John, but I mean that's why I have to interrupt you, because you make a point uh, in about 15 minutes, which could have been made in 15 seconds. But thanks for your call, and thank you very much for taking part. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Let's talk to Harry Wilkinson, Head of Policy at Net Zero Watch, and find out what is going on uh, in the energy business. Harry, very good afternoon to you. Good afternoon, Mike. Thanks very much indeed for joining us. I mean, this is not a crisis that we didn't see coming. This is a crisis that we've been knowing about for quite some time. It's getting worse. People are telling me now that not only have their, um, in some cases, have their bills doubled, but they've sort of tripled. People are paying 120 quid instead of what they used to pay, which was closer to 40. People are paying 600 quid a month when they used to pay 200. It's extraordinary what's going on. That's right. People have warned about this for a long time. And the government themselves actually commissioned a report on the cost of energy. It was done by a professor from Oxford called Dieter Helm. And he gave a number of very useful recommendations which would have helped deal with this problem with our electricity grid at the moment, uh, which is that renewables are very intermittent. When the wind isn't blowing, gas is actually ramping up. 
So actually, wind isn't protecting us from volatile gas prices. And the government is very keen to pass this off as a crisis of international gas prices. But at times, we've actually been paying 10 times as much for our gas than they pay in the United States. So this is actually a government-made problem. Mm. We haven't, as you said, invested in fracking for natural gas, shale gas. Uh, we've refused a permit for the Jackdaw gas field. And all of these cuts are mounting up. Uh, they're restricting our supply. Across Europe, they're doing the same. The Dutch are running down their own offshore gas fields, um, driven by this green ideology. Um, we will have to rely on gas for many decades to come. However much you want to get rid of gas, gas is the main source of heating for most people in this country. It's also the most significant single power source for our electricity grid. So any change to that scenario will take a long time. So the government needs a plan and it needs a plan quickly uh, to get these prices down to actually deal with the market fundamentals um, rather than just do sticking plaster uh, yeah. policies to uh, actually deal with the problem and uh, have a long lasting competitive Energy well, that's the thing, because handing out money, as Rishi Sunak seems to think, is now the cure-all for everything to people. 500 quid here, 1,000 quid there. If you can't pay your bills, here's some government money, which inevitably is, is money from you and I. Uh, it's clearly a short-term embarrassment. You know, surely what they ought to be looking at is at least reducing, if not doing away with altogether, the green subsidy, which makes up for 20%, and maybe even the VAT, which makes up another 5%. That's right. And a group of uh, MPs uh, who are part of the net zero scrutiny group um, actually called to do exactly that. That's to remove the environmental levies off of energy bills. They now make up close to 25 percent of electricity bills, a smaller share of heating bills. But that would provide some relief uh, to consumers who are facing very large rises. Mm. Um, the government also decided to allow the rough gas storage field to close. And an academic report has found that that's actually led to more volatile prices uh, in response to supply shocks. So that's left us, that lack of storage has left us uh, even more uh, vulnerable. So there's just own goal after mm. own goal here um, by a government that's unfortunately prioritizing at every stage decarbonization. Um, its response to this crisis has sort of been to cover its eyes and say, we just need to do what we're doing, that's decarbonising uh, even faster, and not actually consider that we could actually reduce our emissions by having domestic gas supplies, because we wouldn't be importing it uh, from abroad. We wouldn't be relying on regimes like Russia that we actually uh, have many di differences with. Um, and uh, we would be keeping that job and that investment right here, actually levelling up, as the government always likes to say, well, what does that mean? This is an example of something positive that it could mean um, if we keep that investment, those jobs right here in the UK. Right. And, I mean, the fracking argument has been going on for a long time. I mean, is that never going to be made successfully uh, by somebody uh, other than, you know, what is regarded as the sort of, uh, you know, the bad guys who want to frack and uh, don't care whether there's earthquakes all over Lancashire. I mean, surely the argument should now be made that we need, as Richard Ty said this morning, to generate our own energy, because then one, we've got control over it. Two, we're not going to be held to ransom by any foreign powers. And three, um, it's cheap. 
That's right, and it's a very unbalanced debate that you hear about shale gas. Uh, wind and solar, for example, take up much more land than uh, in terms of per unit of energy generated um, than shale gas extraction would take. So this is a, a technology not with a big footprint on the environment. It's actually quite a small footprint. Um, and it's one that would bring about huge economic benefits uh, for particularly the North mm. um, as well. And we have to ask ourselves, as a country, do we want to be a place which is seen by international investors as somewhere where the government, just because it doesn't like a particular industry, can arbitrarily shut it down? Yeah. These aren't uh, principles by law that apply uniformly to other technologies and other forms of economic development. Why is shale gas extraction being singled out as something that uh, can just be cancelled by the government um, at, at its whim? Exactly right. And what is this kind of Green New Deal nonsense that we keep hearing about? You know, these jobs that are going to be created uh, in the green industries that we have yet to set up. I mean, it seems to me the green subsidy that everybody pays on their energy bill is going to fund the lifestyles of several millionaires uh, who've been lucky enough to form themselves into, you know, sort of green energy companies. Well, you could justify just about any money printing big government intervention scheme by saying it would create jobs that mm. what we should be looking at is are these the right jobs are these uh, efficient uh, ways to use our resources and historically markets have always been the best uh, way to decide where jobs are in the economy to create a competitive market in which people can uh, earn a good salary and uh, not actually just be propped up by the government, which isn't a sustainable way. We've seen industries that have become um, state-led in the past, and they've not been sustainable for the long term because they keep costing more and more, and eventually the government realises it can't fund it anymore, and those jobs get lost. I'm really worried that with this green industrial revolution, we'll see all of this government money propping up industries that wouldn't otherwise exist in potentially underdeveloped parts of the country and these people could be failed all over again um, by these state-led uh, industries. Mm. Yeah, I mean, it's makes us belief, really, that this has been allowed to happen. As you say, the energy in America is a lot cheaper. In most of Europe, it's certainly cheaper than, than what we pay. But how much of this do you think, Harry, is simply down to sort of recalcitrance from Downing Street and this ridiculous belief in green power? Well, it's a global uh, issue as well. We've seen Western governments all around the world f focus on net zero commitments and really forget what they're there to do, which is to raise the living standards of their own citizens. Where is the focus on actually improving people's living standards that actually would raise environmental standards as well? We see the richest countries around the world are actually the ones where people spend the most time, effort, care, resources on protecting the environment. So this is a actually a counterproductive obsession, um, which is going to leave people poorer and ultimately less willing and able to protect the environment. Yeah. And I mean, as far as the future of energy goes, we've seemed to have had this kind of free for all where the big companies have done whatever they've wanted to do. Uh, they've set the prices as high as they'd like. Um, these smaller companies have come in piggybacking on the supply, if you like. They're all going bust. 
I mean, something surely has to be done. And I know that the dreaded nationalisation word uh, has been uh, spoken about even in Tory party circles, even though apparently Keir Starmer doesn't want to nationalise anything, according to him. Um, but they're going to have to change the way it's all done, aren't they? That's right. It, it's not really true to say that we have a proper competitive free market uh, system in energy anymore. Mm. Uh, this is a market that is almost entirely led by government decision making. And that policy to have an energy price cap, which sounded good in theory, it sounded like we were going to have uh, energy price rises limited. But now we're looking at 50% plus increases in people's energy bills. So it hasn't worked. Mm. Uh, many of us at the time said that it wouldn't work. Um, and so we're seeing all the energy companies grouping at the top of what they can possibly charge. And um, when actually, if we had proper competition, we would see a greater range of choice for consumers and actually a pressure to get bills down. Yeah, absolutely right. And well, the, the price cap is a joke now, isn't it? Whenever anybody says, well, of course, thank goodness we've got a price cap. You go, really? Well, the price is going up like three to 400%. It's not much of a price cap. That's right. All it does is give these companies license to charge the maximum of what they're allowed to charge. And they push, put increasing pressure on the government to increase uh, that level further. And of course, government then adds further environmental levies on top of that. Um, and the cycle continues and they push for an even higher cap. So there's no competitive process pushing bills down anymore. And we're just going to pay more and more. Mm. So the the industry needs fundamental reform. Dieter Helm, who I mentioned earlier, did a cost of energy review, had many useful suggestions. Those now, I think, need to be revisited. We need to look at uh, long-term solutions uh, to get energy costs down um, because people will really suffer. If people are being forced to choose between heating and eating, uh, this is a huge step backwards in terms of our living standards, um, and it's a mark of government failure over decades. Absolutely right. Harry, thanks very much indeed for talking to us. Harry Wilkinson, the Head of Policy at Net Zero Watch, talking about the dangers uh, of allowing this energy crisis to just continue. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Perrier Awards. Yeah, I've already messed it up. <laughs> Steffi Amphlet is here because uh, Izzy is away. Thank you for stepping into the breach. It's very Thank you kind. For having me. And it's very nice to see. What you don't know is Steffi is the, the person who gets this all right, uh, unlike me, who just got the introduction to the period completely wrong. Uh, she does all the great things that you see out there on video, masterminds it, with the help of a few other people. Yes, but yes, I mean, yes. you have, I have to say, you um, alone have completely changed the way we look, and it's brilliant. Oh, thank so you thank so you. much. Thank, thank, thank you, you very Mike. much. You've even made me look. I'm not going to say attractive, but certainly something to look at. Let's put it that way. Well, I don't do your hair and makeup, but I do put your in-ears for you. You do do that yeah. because, quite. I mean, I can't. I still can't do my own ears. Um, take of that what you will. But anyway, <laughs> welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Not at all. And, and thanks um, to Izzy as well for letting me jump in and keep the seat warm. Absolutely right. And it's a very nice uh, purple affair you've got going on Thank there. Thank you. Yes. Reminds me of my days as an altar boy. Because they used to do a lot of purple around Easter time. But, I mean, probably the less said about that, the better. Well, yeah, maybe. Yes. Anyway, <laughs> off you go. Um, OK, so I'm going to do it really officially. So, go. 
Welcome to the Perry Awards. This is where we look back at the week and choose our favourite moments. Mm. I'm even looking into the camera. Good job. I only know that because obviously I normally do the camera work, <laughs> so I know where to well, look. Finally, somebody <laughs> sitting there that knows where to look. <laughs> I'm probably looking to the wrong camera. So, as it's tradition, the first Perry Award goes to you, Mike. Thank you. Now, we know you're a man of many talents. But we had no idea that you were able to impersonate heavy machinery. So this is the Perrier for the noise of the week. Some kind of angle grinder would just go, and I'm just unhook you, no? It does sound a bit like that. You know when you're sort of at home and somebody's doing it across the street and you can't stop hearing it and it's really noisy. That's kind of what I was doing an impression of. Yeah, it was very good. Thank you. Yeah, very good. And the next one, so Greg Wallace is mm. in the next one. So he's presented thousands of TV shows. And uh, in his time, you'd think he'd know how a camera worked, but not quite. This is a perrier for Greg for Framing of the Week. I need a monthly subscription, and I'm being deadly serious because I'm going to put myself as the absolute archetypal person for you. And you've disappeared now, mate. We're looking at the light. Come yeah, back. I don't know why. I'm, I'm in the middle of my camera, but only half your... Only oh, half I my... don't know. Don't start me on my camera. Move to your left, pal. Move to your left a little bit. A little bit to your left. No, that's your right, isn't it? That's the it. other left. That's it. Stop. Stop. <laughs> Stop. That's it. Great. Um, the thing is... That's hopeless, isn't it? <laughs> the thing I don't get is that he doesn't know he's left from right. Yeah. Maybe he thought when he said move a bit to your left, he thought you meant your left. Yeah, maybe. People yeah. can be a bit strange like that. Yeah, that's very, very difficult to work out why you couldn't, <laughs> why you just can't be on camera. It yeah. is, I mean, for those people, because we have had people say this in the past, some people aren't actually watching us. So for those who are not watching, that was Greg Wallace looking ridiculous because he wasn't actually in sight. So um, I know that doesn't always work if you're just listening, but what can I say? No, it was a good one. Yeah. Um, okay, so the next one, uh, one presenter... He's been a little bit clumsy this week. Mm. So Jeremy Kyle, our old friend Jezza, he gets two perriers. One for this stumble. You know what? Oh. I, think, I think you're absolutely spot on. That's, I, I think you're spot on. Listen, Ben, I've got to stop. There's been an accident in the studio. <laughs> oh. But thank you for that. Jeremy Kyle came in. <laughs> What did you do? Did you... Oh, it's like mounting a horse. The chair leg's gone somewhere it shouldn't have. Did it really? Not Are that you talking about... Does he mean the arm, not the leg? Well, I think, no, I think he hit his arm, didn't he? No, oh, did, I see. No, did he hit his arm on the... Oh, I no, see. he hit his leg on the arm. Oh, he hit That's his leg on the arm, is, yeah. right. Not easy to remember that. But um, he always makes an entrance, doesn't he? Does. He does, yeah. he does. And the next one is for this spillage. Aaron wow. mess would... Oh, my Lord, I've got tea <laughs> everywhere. There you go. <laughs> Carry on, keep talking. It's okay. Just keep talking. Uh, you you, you clear it up. I uh, actually, yeah. I, I think Jeremy Hunt is a strong contender, but I yeah. still think, I actually think it'll be Rishi Sunak will be the next leader. You definitely Believe it or not, yes, yeah. I do, for a number of reasons. Do you want to but... get out the number while I try and get tea off yeah, your trousers? Yeah, I, I think that's probably not a bad idea. I mean, oh, there, I there has been quite a dramatic spillage in the, uh, I mean, Jeremy really has yeah. an entire mug of tea there. But no, if yeah. you do want to ring him uh, after, presumably, he cleans this up with all or the Or gets fired for, for destroying the destroying desk, the, which can't I mean, be too much expensive. Let's be honest, well, I've saved it from going anywhere well yeah. which is more valuable I mean the, the, the theatres and the technical equipment are you I mean that's, that's what I want to know goes without saying the equipment <laughs> very nicely full framed there as well probably yes. by you perhaps um, no actually that would have been the lovely Susan doing okay. that very good well I, done Susan I wasn't here when that happened mm. so when I saw a clip about spilling tea I thought it meant gossip because really? that's like a thing, isn't it? If you spill the tea, oh yes, you're like like spilling the gossip. Oh, I haven't heard that the one. Gossip. I haven't heard that one. And I've thought, heard oh, the one about not giving the tea, but that's something else. Get not giving the tea. Yeah, oh. if the tea isn't wanted. Oh, that's okay. something else. But anyway, okay. On on with the show. <laughs> and uh, well, 
we've got one last one. So, perhaps the most accident-prone person of the week was Labour's Jonathan Reynolds when he made this dreadful mistake whilst talking to Julia on Wednesday. This is the foot-in-the-mouth perrier mm. of the week. You well, look, feel... This sort of tedious anti-vax stuff, anti... Excuse me? Excuse me, Jonathan Reynolds? How dare you? How dare you? I am so fed up, and so are my listeners. I'm asking you to produce the scientific basis for you claiming that you feel a policy works when it's a massive infringement on civil liberties. And you've just basically accused me of being anti-vax. I am double vaccinated. I have always encouraged people to get the vaccine. Oh, dear. He won't be doing that again in a hurry. No, definitely not. <laughs> I mean, you know, everybody with half a brain, as I quite often say, knows you do not say that sort of thing to Julie yeah. Hartley Brewer. Exactly. If you wish to leave the room with your uh, body intact. I don't know what he was thinking, to be honest. I mean, I don't... I don't. Well, he did apologise, apparently. He's very he sorry. He did, yeah. Right, then. Well... Is that it? That's it. Brilliant. Well, Steph, thank you very much indeed. Thank you for Steph having me. Steffi Amflit there, stepping into the breach with the Perry Awards. Talk radio across the UK, online, on DAB, and on your smart speaker. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. If you enjoyed that, be sure to catch the whole show 10 to 1, Monday to Friday, on Talk Radio via DAB online or via the Talk Radio app. And if you have an opinion on the stories we cover, we'd love to hear from you. Call us on 0344 499 1000 or tweet at Talk Radio during the show to have your say. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio.